welcome to season two of the Hyper Leadership Podcast. I am your host, David Morris, CEO and founder of Hyper Solutions. At Hyper Solutions, our mission is to bring positive change to the world. Leaders today are faced with unprecedented change, and yet even the best leaders have had to toss out their standard playbook and think outside the box. Our intent with the Hyper Leadership Podcast is to share best practices so that you, our listeners, can gain some actionable approaches to your next big endeavor. Today, my guest is Giresh Rishi, CEO of Blue Yonder. As a leading supply chain management company, Blue Yonder helps to provide revolutionary planning for the manufacturing, retail, and operations of businesses, giving them the ability to predict, assess, and meet their customer demands. Giresh and I were recently introduced through a mutual connection because, as they described it, Giresh is a true game changer. Hi, Giresh. Hello, David, and glad to be on your podcast. Girish, tell me what it was like. What was that tap on the shoulder? What did it feel like when you got that call to join the predecessor name of Blue Yonder? Yeah, David, I received the call in October of 2016, and I remember it like yesterday. While I'm speaking with Egon Zender, who approached me, I knew of JDA, and something instinctively told me this is for me, that I'm interested and I want to pursue it. The opportunity to come to a marquee company close to a billion dollars in revenues and transform it and lead it was an opportunity of a career as I envisioned it then. And there was a lot of come to discover with you, you know, training that went into this, making this a really great fit. Now, what's so intriguing to me is I've seen so many companies try to transform from legacy software into SaaS. They want to achieve the recurring revenue. They want to become more customer-centric, but few pull it off. Microsoft and Adobe have been real benchmarks, but you have really now established yet another benchmark. What's the challenge? Why do so many companies fail in this? I'll tell you why we succeeded, and maybe that is, in a way, answering your question, why others bail. And it has to do with the customer and the culture. We prioritize day one. The first town hall, the second week I had, we prioritized looking deeply into our values. What makes us tick? 4,000 associates then across the world, across 41 different locations. What drives us? What binds us together? And then customer experience. SaaS too often becomes about hitting a certain metric or hitting a certain valuation. For us, it was always about achieving a high level of customer experience where the customer benefits from our supply chain solutions. Early on, David, a core management team and I myself, we visited with the CEO of Adobe up in the Bay Area. And that's one of the mantras he and his management team shared with us. So we prioritized customer experience immensely from day one, four years ago, and our own culture internally. How do we disagree? How do we debate? How do we align around common goals and then go, you know, climb big mountains and drive towards achievements? On this journey from a $2.5 billion company to an $8.5 billion company in approximately four years, what really was the biggest challenge in that first year? Yeah, and when you're mentioning $2.5 billion, the valuation $2.5 billion four years ago, now the valuation is $8.5 billion. And the most significant challenge when we started this path four years ago when I joined the company is within the first week, I met with about 70 to 80 associates, team members, very loyal employees, supply chain experts, software experts, 
but there was lack of clarity on company strategy. There was lack of clarity on what our product roadmap is and how, how we will rally behind it. And gaining credibility on that within the employee customer base, with the board of directors, investors, but especially with customers was a big initiative at the outset. How do you do it? I mean, we talk about shared compelling vision in North Star a lot with game-changing CEOs. But for anybody sort of going new and seed into a role now, it can be tricky. You can talk to a lot of people, but how much ultimately is the synthesis in your own mind versus facilitating with others? I mean, you make it sound really straightforward, but as you sort of go back and you got all those inputs, how do you bring it all together? You got to have a vision. Vision is not a community development area. A true north has to come from an individual. And given I was coming in from the outside, I had a true north definition that supply chain happens at the edge in the retail shelf and the warehouse floor and the truck and fleet and the factory floor. And as an enterprise software company, we need to lean into the point of impact onto the edge. And that's the kind of software company we will build. Laying that vision out rallies team members. Having a management team that is collegial in nature, we have a vast majority of the management team today. And very soon, within a year when I came on, we had to deploy a new management team, a new senior leadership team on my staff, some from within, some from outside. So out of 12 management team members today, 10 are new who were not in their roles four years ago. Because ultimately, you need a debating, argumentative, but aligning management team, highly transparent, highly trust-oriented management team that can take on the challenge that we faced at the start of 2017. And I'm immensely proud of what we have achieved on that front. And what did the sequencing look like, you know, in those first, say, six months between solidifying that vision and also course correcting the leadership team? How did it all play out? You know, authenticity was number one. JDA then, uh, what we were called, the team did not know me. So when you are not known, there is a lack of trust. And listening and being authentic is a daily job initially for the team to start trusting you, even if they disagree with what you said. For me, job one, job two, job three was establishing a management team and a behavior from a culture standpoint that would exude and last through the stamina of the years ahead. And getting the management team wrong or marginally right was not an option. That was job one in the first six months. And we hit a home run on that front. Was it a cascading effect? I mean, was it getting one or two people that you were really targeting and then they brought people along? I, again, you have an ability to really make it sound so simple. <laughs> Yet there were so many moving pieces to this. What was the key? I mean, we're using the same search folks. We, I mean, how did you do this? It's, that's a great question, David. It started with the head of go-to-market. On my first day on the job, it was a global sales kickoff. We were in Vegas. And I went for a walk outside with the head of North America. And that afternoon itself on my first day, I said, I'm going to contemplate if this gentleman should be the head of global go-to-market. He had been in the company 22 years. He still leads the company in that role. Bringing on a provocative product leader, a search we started literally a couple of weeks into the job, was a big priority. We recruited a leader who's in that job, came in within the first six months. He's the product leader today. I want to share two more examples, David. 
the weekend before I started, I spoke to the chief marketing officer. And in the first two minutes, he said, Girish, you are the wrong guy for the role. I believe the board made a mistake. And I'm not sure if your background is relevant to us. And guess who the chief marketing officer is today? It is that gentleman. Because my message to myself was, I applaud this gentleman who's so candid with me. If he's as good as I think he is, he's going to be my partner. And here four and a half years from now, he and I are, are simpatico. The general counsel, who's now the chief administrative officer, used to report to the CFO. And we had an instantaneous personal connect when we met. And he's taken on much since then and is a trusted partner. I can go on and on. I'm immensely proud of my leadership team, but really the expanded management team across the world. But the ethos of a company, the power of a management team and what you deliver is determined based on what we just talked about. And so the concept of having that new team solidify the vision and the plans and all of that versus you having to have enough of an instinct to be able to actually promote these individuals, you know, using that as sort of a benchmark. Again, the ordering of it, what did that look like? The ordering was gain credibility with three stakeholders. First of all, if your employees don't believe in you, everything else is moot. And the generous associates of Blue Yonder gave us time that allowed us to craft a strategy. We made commitments instantaneously to customers that we lived through. I was involved with our team to take customers live, to solve problems. And based on that, gaining credibility of the board of directors and investors who were skeptical initially, can this management team, can the CEO do it? So that was, at the outset, pivotal for us. And then there was this seminal meeting up in Sonoma. I took 30 leaders to Sonoma into wine country. And we spent Monday through Friday there. We worked 12 hours, and then we went to a winery here or there every evening. And we approached big rocks. As the meeting ended, I put up on a whiteboard, I said, if we go do execute all of this, we may be four and a half to $5 billion in valuation. And today, those management team members have called me and said, Girish, we never believed it then. We thought it was a stretch that was not possible to bridge. It's those aspects that stick out in my mind today as I speak to you. It sounds like alignment, alignment, alignment. Correct. How many months in was that trip up to Sonoma? It was right after the 12th month. So the first six months, establish a management team, a strategy, cohesive strategy. The second half of that year in the first year, gain board buy-in. And immediately after that, we headed in the spring to Sonoma. And again, the key goal of Sonoma was? Alignment. You said it, and I was going to use that word. What I believe CEOs and management teams need to attain and achieve is pristine, absolute alignment between the front lines all the way back to the board. Through small and large companies that I have worked, where companies have tripped, is there is a different view of the true north of what needs to be achieved all the way through different nodes from the front line onto the board. So communication, laying out a vision, a manifesto on a regular basis, literally writing a two-page manifesto out of what the future looks like and getting your stakeholders to buy into it, including your customers. One needs to have immense stamina to do that. That is a marathon. And we, I myself with the management team, we spent a lot of time and we continue to do that today, by the way. What percentage of the way there in terms of the game plan to get to the big milestone of the acquisition from Panasonic recently, what percentage of that game plan 
did you land on by the end of the Sonoma trip? I, I will go back if you read the press release the day I came on and if you read my quotation, which is the only thing I wrote myself. It calls out where we are heading. And it was all about the edge, about the point of impact. Literally, the word edge and edge analytics is laid out in my quotation. And the manifestation of that true north, the detail on that strategy in Sonoma led to this provocative acquisition by a discerning Japanese brand, Panasonic, that's been around for 100 years. That was announced uh, less than a month ago. So when you were on the flight home from Sonoma with a game plan, with an aligned team, how close did you feel you were to what you needed to pull off the goal at hand? I'm a paranoid person by nature, so there was no swagger, no immense confidence that we can pull this off. I had big questions ahead of me. I was 12 months in. Can we deliver our first product, SaaS product, on time? Will customers buy it? How will their experience be? Will the go-to-market team worldwide and partners have an uptake on that? Will we be able to deliver a better proposition than our customers? So I was immensely paranoid. I was deriving my strength from the growing momentum within our employee, our associate base, where they were vocalizing their belief in the, in the long-term strategy. And as we were meeting with our customer advisory board, they were encouraging us and they were telling us we are in the right direction while they were critiquing us on different fronts. So that was the source of my confidence that we may be on to something. The Customer Advisory Council, how much did you evolve that when you joined? And what's the biggest lesson learned from that experience? The biggest lesson learned is iteration. Companies, they have a governance forum where they formally meet with the customer advisory board once or twice a year. It's a two-day meeting. They have social hour. They go away. For us, it's become an intimate relationship. It's about 30 companies. They're C-level folks on it. And we use them for navigation purposes. We bring opportunities, problems in supply chain around the world, solutions for it, and we ideate with them. We fully transparently share with them our roadmap. We fully transparently share our cultural attributes. And we learn from them how to continue building a company. So we have, we have iteration with them. Tomorrow morning, the second time in a month, we'll be speaking with the customer advisory board again, sharing with them the Panasonic Blue Yonder thesis. So I would say iteration is the name of the game to leverage that capability. You know, as I just think about this alignment, everything in terms of you aligning with the culture and understanding of the organization, understanding that team, evolving the team concurrent with being in sync with the customers and yet alignment with the board. You know, what I'd like to transition to is, again, you make this look so easy. You really do. <laughs> and I'm just trying to understand what it is about your background. Maybe a couple mentors or your upbringing that allowed you to just be able to get yourself in the shoes of other people, really understand what's on their minds. How did you learn this? There's a couple facets, one professional, one personal that I would like to share with you. The most defining professional experience for me was when I was at Symbol Technologies, a technology, innovative technology company out of Long Island that I had joined when it was $100 million in revenues. We were about a billion. And in the year 2000, the CEO asked me to move to Europe to run EMEA. David, I was 31 years old then and indigenously not European. 
and I took on a company, a division or a part of the company that was 30% of the company. So to arrive in Europe and people learning how to pronounce my name and establishing trust across the various offices with customers and building a growth strategy and putting that into work tested me to the extreme and I learned a lot. So that's a professional experience. A personal experience here, David, is I grew up in a rural mountain town in northern India, south of the Nepal border. My father, who was an LSU graduate, chemical engineer from LSU, was a management team member in this aluminum company, and he had 20,000 workers, employees on his, on his team. And I, I, I grew up used to my father being gone in the evenings, gone on Sundays, because he was in the hospital with an employee who had an accident on the production floor or showing compassion to another employee's family member who was in a difficult situation. So for me, leadership training was watching my father immensely supported by my mother. And that shaped, in some ways, I believe, my own leadership skills ahead, being authentic, genuinely empathizing and engaging while being demanding to drive towards business results. And now bringing that back now to the last six months before the company was acquired, did you feel that the alignment across all stakeholders was at its best? I mean, did you ever feel a finish line or does that paranoia prevent that? There's no finish line. We are calling the Panasonic acquisition of Blue Yonder a pit stop, and we have a provocative vision ahead of what we want to keep building. Just a month before the pandemic started, we changed the name of the company from JDS Software to Blue Yonder. And then the pandemic comes on, and I woke up every day from March through May saying, we cannot lose the company on my watch. And how do we save the company? How do we save our customers? Because we do supply chain. Was it really at risk in your mind? No, but the, the, the fog was so dense. I mean, our balance sheet was immensely strong. We had not taken any new debt in four years. We had a great recurring revenue stream. But you go back in March when the world was sh shutting down, the fog was so dense, we had no idea what we would see tomorrow when we woke up. So what are all those measures we can take on a defensive mechanism? but as well as on an offensive mechanism for the company to prevail. And that was about 14 months before we announced the Panasonic acquisition of Blue Yonder. And since May, we went on the offensive. We finished the year with more employees than we started. We added more to research and development. We made an acquisition of an e-commerce company. That's really remarkable. And just thinking about this hire, putting ourselves in the shoes of the board, and what kind of CEO to bring in. What would you do next time around? Let's say you were in the board of a company and you were looking to bring in a CEO that just had this ability to swiftly realign, completely realign, be able to rethink the strategy with the team, evolve the team, customer alignment, et cetera. Talk to me a little bit about how you would evaluate that candidate if you were hiring that CEO. David, that's a great question. And I draw learnings from my, my own experiences. Picking me as the head of EMEA 20 years ago, the example I shared with you, I was not the obvious candidate. What management teams and boards tend to do at times is select somebody within the standard deviation. The standard deviation four and a half years ago for the board would have been go to one of the big ERP companies or go to Microsoft and recruit somebody. 
I was outside of the standard deviation. But I give credit to the search committee, to the board, to look at a basket of candidates and make a bet on me. And I have asked our board members, why me at that time, after a few years after I was selected, as trust developed. And I have gotten different answers. One was I was the most well-prepared. I had a 16-page document written on JDA for my own purposes. When I'm on, I'm on a public board, and I have been on boards for the last decade, I look for authenticity. We do not hire any prima donnas. Is the leader transparent? Is the leader, he or she, have the ability to admit mistakes? What is the recruiting and motivation strategy that the leader deploys? Can the candidate debate on a topic around ideas? And those are things I look for, and perhaps that's what the search committee and the board of directors of JDA tested me on. And how about this whole empathy and alignment piece? If you don't already know the person and you're the board member trying to assess the CEO on that, what would be some practical approaches that you would use? You can tell about a person the first five minutes you meet if the person is authentic, right? Is the candidate able to share their contemplations, their areas that they have doubts on, their vulnerabilities, balanced with their conviction on their experience, their strategic wherewithal, their ability to build teams. So authenticity leads into a compassion, empathy that results in getting a buy-in from the broader community out there, be it your associate employee base or the customer base. That's a pivotal ingredient to test candidates on, and that's what I practice when I interview people. Beyond your intuition as you're observing those aspects, is there anything else you leverage or particular inputs from others? Definitely. You know, I tend to anchor in a candidate. We just hired a phenomenal leader from Workday. He had been there for 13 years. He joined the founders 13 years ago when the company was less than 10 million, and he left just two months ago when Workday is four and a half billion. And in the first 40 minutes, I knew Derek Butts was my guy. I wanted to recruit him as the most recent hire in the management team. But then from there on, I have a slew of interviewing forum, at least six to eight people who interview the candidate. I have board members who interview, and I do references myself. There is a methodology that GH Smart uses where you chronologically go through a person's life to understand that person better. So it starts heavily on the right brain side of instinct and feeling good about it. And then it continues to slide to the left brain, the analytical, the factual, the evidential side to feel good. And David, (laughs) recruiting is still an art. (laughs) All of us get it wrong at times. Well, what, what an awesome story. Authenticity, trust, alignment, and a playbook that you clearly developed applicable to so many industries. Thank you, Girish. David. Thank you for the very compelling and provocative questions. To our hyper leadership listeners, thank you for your continued support and feedback. Stay tuned this season for many more hyper leadership achievements. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Hyper Leadership Podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a big digital transformation you're leading, visit our website to learn more about how we help align teams and stakeholders for excellence at hypersolutions.com.